sermon number two of our series, Learning to Love Like the Lord. And last week we looked at love's endurance. We looked at how God's love never fails. Uh, it never gives up no matter uh, what, what we do. It's, uh, it's always there for us and our love ought to be mirrored to that. Uh, we're going through all of the attributes attributed to charity in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and I've got them broken down into four different categories. Uh, they could be broken down different ways, I guess, but this is the way I feel led to have broken them down. And so tonight we'll look at uh, love's etiquette. Now let me just say before we stand for the reading of the Word of God that uh, the word charity and the word love are very, very similar, but they're not exactly the same thing. And I'll use them interchangeably uh, throughout the series, but charity has more to do with giving to someone who has less than you do. Uh, you may have heard of a charitable organization. They collect and give to people who are less fortunate. And so as you look at it from that light, there's probably uh, many applications that could be made from that. But the definition of charity and the definition of love are similar enough to where uh, we can make these applications uh, uh, from, from the Word of God. Let's stand tonight, read from verse 4 down through verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The Bible says there, Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. Is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Again, the title of the message this evening is this, Love's Etiquette. Love's Etiquette. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that tonight... You would help us, guide us, uh, teach us, show us exactly what it is in our homes and our relationships that can be improved out of your word tonight. Lord, our prayer is simple tonight, that you'd be here amongst us and that you'd guide us into your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. One evening, a working mother rushed into the grocery store to pick up a few ingredients she lacked to make her, her supper. As she exited the grocery store in haste, she came around the corner and bumped into a man who was in just as big of a hurry as she was. Uh, in, the, uh, in the bumping into each other, her bags flew out of her arms and her grocery items flew all over the sidewalk. The man was very apologetic and stooped down to help the lady pick up her items and put them back in her bag. The lady was very cordial to this complete stranger she had never met. And they, uh, she, she forgave him for the, uh, the accident there, and off she went. A bit later, she found herself in the kitchen carrying a large pot over to the hot sink, a hot, a hot large pot over to the sink, where when her five-year-old five son uh, got down below her feet, and he said to his mom, he said, Hey, Mom, I got some. And he, she interrupted him and said, What are you doing? I almost dropped this all, your dinner all over the floor. You just need to get out of here and go play. And the little boy put his head down and said, I'm sorry, Mommy, and rushed out of the room. Later that night, the exhausted mom laid in bed. She thought back to that encounter of the complete stranger at the grocery store who she was so kind to 
even though she didn't know him. And then how much she loved her little boy and how rude she had been to him as he got under her feet. The mom climbed out of bed and slipped into the room of her little boy. She got down on her knees and she began to run her fingers through his hair and just just love on him. That little boy woke up and he looked at his mom's eyes and he reached up and put his hands on her, her cheeks. And the mom said to the little boy, she said, I'm sorry I was so rude to you earlier. And the little boy said, it's okay, mommy. And she said, what was it that you were trying to tell me? The little boy said, well, I made a card for you in pre-kindergarten today, and I was just trying to give you my card. Do we find sometimes in life that the people that we love the most often see us at our worst? The people that we love the most, we struggle to be the kindest and the gentlest with them, while complete strangers, we are loving and careful and kind. The old phrase says this, that familiarity breeds contempt. And the more you get to know someone, the more comfortable you are with being yourself. And when you, what is inside of you lacks charity, what your people, the people that you love see is anything but kindness, anything but the proper etiquette, anything but love's etiquette. In our study of this charity chapter, God takes the time to make sure that we understand uh, that there is a certain etiquette that accompanies our interactions with others. This etiquette isn't always natural. But as we learn to love others the way that God wants us to love, then we will begin to implement these manners, this etiquette, in our love one for another. What was it that Jesus reminded us of in John chapter 13 and verse 35? He said this, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. Love one for another. The lost are supposed to look at the saved and see a difference in how we treat each other. While their marriages are falling apart, yours should be growing stronger. While the children of the lost are rebelling and running to drugs and sin, the average Christian home ought to be growing stronger. When someone wrongs the lost, uh, uh, they have their way of responding, don't they? We ought to respond with the love of Christ. They should stand in awe. They should be shocked. They should be surprised at how mannerly and how supernatural our love is one to another. This evening, I believe that if we are able to love the way that Christ loves us, uh, and we are able to embrace a certain pattern of behavior, then we'll see great things done in our marriages, in our relationship with our children, in our relationship with our co-workers, and even our relationship with our enemies. Furthermore, as we, as we embrace the correct behavior, we should put away those things that cause us to lust, that cause impurities in our love. Those things which are labeled as unseemly or inappropriate, they don't belong in anybody's uh, heart, they don't belong in anybody's home, and they sure don't belong uh, in the home, in, in your home and in your life. I'm afraid that oftentimes we get our idea of what love is from a secular world around us. Tonight, let's look at three more attributes out of the 
chapter here in 1 Corinthians 13. And let's look at how we can apply them to behave the way that love ought to behave. Number one, now make this note, love's politeness. Love's politeness. Look with me at verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 13 there. It says, charity suffereth long. Everybody read those next three words out loud together with me. And is kind. Again, and is kind. There is a politeness, a kindness that goes along with uh, with uh, with love. Uh, there is a uh, there is a sense that I am going to treat you uh, better uh, than maybe at the moment that you deserve. I'm going to treat you better uh, than I would treat a complete stranger. There is a kindness that is there. Let's look at three subpoints here below love's politeness. Letter A. First note: love's communication. Love's communication. Gary Chapman in his book, The Five Love Languages, explains that we all communicate love in one of five ways. And before I give those five ways, I'm curious to know, who here has read that book, The Five Love Languages? If you have, would you raise your hand? If you haven't, I'd encourage you to pick up a copy of it and read it. I don't endorse everything Brother Chapman or Mr. Chapman says or does. He may even use some versions of the Bible that I would not endorse. But the concept there in the book is that uh, there are five different ways that we as humans communicate love, and it's important that we know what they are. Here, here's what he lists them to be. Physical touch, words of confirmation, acts of service, quality time, and then giving and receiving gifts. And the concept is this, is that all of us have a way that we communicate love one to the other. Um, now, this isn't exactly Bible doctrine. Okay, but I do believe that if we're going to understand how to be kind the way charity is supposed to be kind, then we need to have a good idea of how it is that we interact and how it is that we love. Uh, how, how successful, we've, we've got plenty of Spanish speakers here tonight, and I won't, I won't, I'll spare you all for my poor attempt at speaking it, uh, but how successful would a marriage be if a, uh, a man who didn't speak any Spanish married a girl who did not speak any English. How, how much communication could there be? Um, I'll tell you a funny story, and I may pay for this later. Um, but when I met my wife, her English was probably about 60%, okay? Uh, I didn't know that at the time. I thought it was probably a little higher than that. And I, I met her at a, a pastor's school. We were paired together to distribute uh, information to the delegates there at that uh, pastoral conference in Hammond, Indiana. And uh, the, the very next week was spring break. After spring break, I asked her out on our first date. And, uh, man, we just hit it off. We were having a great time and going on dates and talking. And Angela worked the sack lunch line. There you pay tuition, room, and board. Part of that room and board included three meals. And if you worked a job off campus during the dinner hour, they provided you a sack lunch to take with you to your job. And I'm not a big uh, sandwich eater, and that was the main thing they had, so I had no interest in going through the sack lunch line. But then I found out that Angela worked the sack lunch line. And let's just say a lot of sandwiches got tossed in the garbage. Um, I made my way through that line beginning every day, and she would, uh, she would work her way down to the end, uh, at the very end of the line where it was, where the chips were kept, a variety of chips to choose to put in your lunch. And she did that so that as I got to the end of the line, we could stand there and talk for a few minutes. And, uh, she probably talked to me on the clock, but we'll let heaven figure all that out. Amen. Um, 
we, uh, so I would talk with her and I would tell her my jokes and my quick little one-liners and she would just die laughing. She thought that was, she, she pretended as though that was great. Truth be told, she didn't understand a thing I was saying. Now when I make a joke, she gets it. At least I think she gets it. You can't be married if you don't speak the same language. You can't be successfully married. Uh, if you communicate love one way and your spouse communicates love another way, you'll be very, very confused and very upset when you attempt to love your spouse and they don't feel that love. Again, I'll use another example from my marriage. Uh, my love language, I have figured out, is physical touch. Uh, I love hugs. I love hand-holding. I love kissing, amen, all the kids, uh, ew, okay, Uh, I love those things, I love to just sit on the couch and put my arm around my wife, Uh, back before I was a pastor, I'd sit in the pew and I'd snuggle up real close to my wife, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, Uh, but I love physical touch, Angela does not communicate love through physical touch, Angela uh, feels love or communicates love through acts of service. Um, Angela uh, uh, shows love to me by putting dinner on the table when I get home and having the house clean in a certain way. I remember early on in our marriage, I would rush home from work and uh, come running in the door and wanting to communicate my love. She would be in the middle of making dinner and just, I mean, noodles are flying everywhere and pots are going here and pots are going there. And I rush in the kitchen and I throw my arms around her and she's, get off of me, I'm trying to cook dinner. And I would walk away with my feelings hurt. I'm trying to love on you, girl. And she was trying to love on me. But we were trying to do it two different ways. And a few years after I was married, this concept was explained to me. Um, Sadly, uh, acts of service is way, way down the line for me. I don't feel very loved uh, when someone does an act of service for me. But what I've had to do is just like I took the time to learn Spanish... I had to take the time to learn the language of acts of service. And so I have gotten good at washing dishes. Amen. I have gotten good at sweeping the floor. I've gotten good at bathing the kids. And I have found that in those moments that I've done those things, she feels very loved by me. And tonight I would tell you this is you need to learn to identify both what your love language is and you need to learn to identify what the love language of those who you love in your life are. Matthew's love language is quality time. He wants me to go out in the backyard and throw the baseball around with him. April's love language is the same as mine. It's physical touch. She wants to just cuddle up in daddy's lap and, and get kisses all over her little cheeks. And I love doing that with her. Uh, but you've got to learn what they are. And then you've got to learn to pour that love communication on them. And uh, picture it this way. Uh, how successful uh, would you be getting from point A to point B if you never put gas in your car? You'd be you'd be on the side of the road. How many of you have ever ran out of gas? Can I see your hand? Uh, and at that moment, you feel like, oh, this is awful, right? Uh, have you ever noticed that gas cans cost more at gas stations than anywhere else? They know they got you, don't they? They got you raked over the barrel. You're going to buy it because the only reason why you're there looking for one is because you ran out of gas. Um, we all have what I would label as a love tank. And when you're not pouring the right kind of love into your spouse's love tank, what you'll find is that they'll start to run on empty. And you'll know they're running on empty when they get very grouchy with you. 
this doesn't just apply to marriage. This applies to any relationship. Some of you in here tonight, you're single parents. You need to learn your children's love language. You say, well, I don't know which one it is. Then for right now, dump all five of those all over your children. If you're taking notes, and I went a little too fast there, physical touch, words of affirmation, acts of service, quality time, and then giving and receiving gifts. Whatever it is, identify what it is and be quick to make sure that you're communicating that love and fill each other's love tanks full. What I often have seen happen and what I find when a couple comes in my office and they're ready to rip each other's heads off because they're so upset is that both of their love tanks have been drained empty and what they're doing is not identifying the, the aggravatedness, the frustratedness and and countering that with, with putting love in the tank, what they're doing is they're taking and they're jamming a, a rod up into the bottom of the tank with mean words and unkind words and they're just making it worse. It could be that if your spouse is not responding to you the way you want, maybe it's just time that you pause and instead of you react in a negative way, you respond in a positive way. And you say, what do I need to do to get them back going in the right direction. So we see love's communication. Talking about love's politeness or love's kindness, let's look at letter B, love's cycle. Love's cycle. We understand the principle of sowing and reaping, don't we? Galatians 6, 7 says, For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Um, the marriage model can be loosely applied to other relationships. So whether you're married or not here, you can take this model and in a, in a loose way, in a different way, apply it to other relationships. But within the marriage model, uh, here's what we have as far as the cycle goes, the love cycle goes. Husband gives godly love to his wife, and in return, the wife gives reverence and respect and in return, she gives the husband, the husband again gives love, and in return, the wife gives godly respect. This is the cycle of how God wants our marriages to work. You say, where do you find that? Well, we're not going to take the time to dive into it tonight, but if you turn over to Ephesians 5, that's exactly what God's Word explains. Uh, men, it is your job to love your wife the way Christ loves the church. That's a tall order. Ladies, it's your job to reverence and respect and submit to your husband. And by the way, ladies, it's easier for you to do that when you feel that your husband loves you. And, and, and men, the others, the same is true when uh, your wife feels that you love her and you're, you have her best interest at heart and you're going all out to, to, to fill that love tank. She wants to uh, be respectful to you. She wants to reverence you. She wants to show you uh, uh, truly uh, uh, what kind of godly wife that she can be. The world has a different model for marriage. And I would label this as the world's failing model. Here's their model. Husbands love, husbands love their wife as long as their wife is nice to them. Wives love their husbands as long as their husbands are nice to them. We would call this the 50-50 model. We've all heard of the 50-50 model. Well, I'm only going 50% of the way. They're not willing to go there 50% and whatever. Um, the, the Christian model, the, the Bible model is 100-100. You, you go all the way, even if your spouse isn't doing theirs. And while someone might say that, how dare you, pastor, 
get up there and say that a wife ought to submit to her husband. Uh, is that some kind of uh, 1920s, 1930s uh, weirdo talk? I thought we had progressed past that as a society. And to that, I would tell you that the Word of God is timeless. And that's the model that the Bible teaches. Let me challenge you tonight, if you're struggling with that idea, let me challenge you with something. Go find a couple that does it the Bible way. Go find a couple that is miserable, that does it the Bible way. I'm going to tell you right now that you can't. It's impossible. When you find one, come back and show me. A wife who's totally submissive to her husband and a husband who's totally loving his wife. Go find that couple that's in misery and bring him to me. You can't. You can't do it. You say, but what about the wife's rights? Women, you will find that you are given a supreme power over your husband when you learn to submit to him and you learn to follow him. He is going to want to give you everything that he can give you because he sees that you're right there with him and you're supportive of him. Love's cycle. Let's let her see talking about the kindness. Love is kind. Love's politeness. Let's look at love's character. Love's character. Let me ask you a question, husband. Does God ever stop loving you? Ever. How about when you ignore Him? You go a whole day and you're so busy with work and life, you never take time to open your Bible and read it. You never whisper one word of prayer. You're so busy, you you eat and you don't even pray before your meal. Does God stop loving you? Does He change the character of His love based on how you... Uh, are, are loving to Him based on the amount of time and attention that you give Him? How about, husbands, when your lifestyle is disrespectful toward Him? Does He stop loving you then? Does He, uh, does he turn off the love in your life? He doesn't, does He? How about, husbands, when you run God down in front of your buddies at work? I hope you don't do that, but if you were to do that, Maybe you take God's name in vain because everybody else does it and you want to fit in. Does God stop loving you? Does His character ever change? Men, how about when you go directly against what God wants for you in your life? Maybe you move to a place He doesn't want you to live. Maybe you change jobs completely against His guidance and direction. Maybe you go somewhere or do something that is directly in violation of what God has commanded you to do in His Word. God, my friend, never stops loving you, does He? His love is perfect. His love is true. His love is there. Now, God in His character will discipline you as a father, but He will never stop loving you. Wives, I could ask you the exact same set of questions. Does God ever stop loving you based on the way you act? Mom, tonight, does God ever stop loving you just because you had a bad day? Uh, maybe you're here tonight and you're a single parent and you're trying to get through life being both mom and dad and sometimes you find yourself doing that in the power of the flesh and you're not seeking God's help and you're not doing it God's way. My friend, God never, ever, ever ceases to love you. Why? Because God has a responsibility to love you that He's given Himself. And God in His character is true to that responsibility. He will never quit. And His responsibility is not based on whether or not you keep up your end of the bargain. He's true to it. 
As I am loving Angela, which is my responsibility out of Scripture, she is receiving her reward for reverencing and respecting me. Reverencing and respecting me is her responsibility. And so you see that I give my love, that's my responsibility. Angela receives her reward. As she is reverencing and respecting me, which is her responsibility, I am receiving my reward uh, for loving her selflessly. You see the cycle here? My responsibility becomes her reward, which fuels her to her responsibility, which provides my reward. So here we have this love cycle that goes around, this marital cycle that goes around. But here's what happens. You're going along and everything's great in your marriage, everything's great in your home, you're loving your wife, you're respecting your husband, you're doing your part, and then one of you ceases for a few minutes to do their part. Maybe the wife has a crossword with the husband. Maybe she has a day where she woke up and she's moody and she's grouchy. You women don't get moody or grouchy, do you? That, that, that must be another church. Women struggle with that. None of you struggle with that, right? But you're moody and you're grouchy and you're snappy. And you know what you do, men? Well, that's how you're going to treat me. Let's see how, how much love I show you. And you may not quite say it that way, but your love, you want to, in your nature, you want to cut the love off. You're not going to love me. I'm not going to love you. And then this bickering back and forth begins. What is love's character? Love's character says, no matter how you treat me, I'm going to fulfill my responsibility. No matter what. Sir, you can whine and complain because you're not getting what you want out of your relationship. And through your whining and complaining, your wife may come under and give you what you want. But it's not usually going to be from her heart. If you will learn love's etiquette, if you will learn love's character, if you will learn to love your wife the way God loves you, in time, she will be exactly the wife that that you want her to be. I heard a man one time complaining about how awful his wife was. He sat in my office and was just ripping his wife to shreds. And I looked at that man, and in the sweetest, meekest tone I could, I looked at him and I said, Sir, if you want your wife to be a queen, then you need to start treating her like one. But if you're not going to treat her like a queen, you can't expect to have a queen for a wife. Ma'am, stop nagging your husband about the honey-do list. Start treating him with love and reverence. There was a lady who was so fed up with her husband because every Saturday was college football. Every Sunday was the NFL. And the rest of the week he was working. He didn't want to do anything that she needed done around the house. So she went to the pastor and she said, I can't get my husband to do anything except sit on the couch and watch football. That's all he'll do. And the man, man said to the pastor, he said, I am sick of my wife nagging me about what needs to be done. So the pastor pulled the wife to the side and he told her this. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put your honeydew list on a piece of paper and I want you to put it on the refrigerator. He said, he goes there a lot, right? She said, well, yeah. So he'll see it on a regular basis, right? Okay. After you put it on the refrigerator, never say anything else about it again. Now what I want you to do after you put that on the refrigerator is I want you to be the sweetest, lovingest, kindest wife to him that you can be. 
and just wait and see what happens. It wasn't two weeks later that lady came running into the pastor's office with every item on that honeydew list checked off and other things that he had found to do. Why? Why? Because he, was, he, he, he wanted to do those things after his wife came in line. And I'm not here to say, ladies, you need to come in line first. Men, as the leaders of your home, you need to do that. But let me just say that if your husband's not willing to do that, ladies, then you pick up the mantle and you do it. But the point here, uh, love's character says, I'm going to worry about my responsibility. And fulfilling that responsibility, I'm not going to worry about my reward. And when I'm not getting what I want out of marriage, I'm going to remain constant and I'm going to continue to do what I do. Sir, if your wife yells at you, bite your tongue. Uh, Ma'am, if your husband has it out with you, Bite your tongue. Learn love's politeness. And so we see here in verse 4 that love is kind. Love's politeness. Number two, let's look at this point. Let's look at love's purity. Love's purity. Again, we're talking about love's etiquette. That's the title of the sermon tonight. And if you're going to behave or have the right manners or the right etiquette in your marriage, then it's not just about what you do. It's also uh, staying away from those things that you ought not do. Look with me at verse 5 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. The Bible says this, Doth not behave itself unseemly. Doth not behave itself unseemly. And we'll look at the other ones another week. But I want to focus in on that one right there. Again, love's etiquette is not only about doing the right things, it's also about ceasing from doing the wrong things. It could be that some of you here tonight, you're kicking yourself in the backside trying to do the right thing. And you are doing the right thing, but the problem is is that secretly you're also doing the wrong thing. And the wrong things are spoiling the good things. Letter A, let's look at mental purity. Mental purity. Can I ask you a question? How pure is your thought life tonight? Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 7 says, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. How do you define you? You define you by the thoughts that you think. Men, we, uh, we think with uh, a system of boxes in our heads. Most men do. You have a certain set of information on a certain topic you stow away. And when you're talking to another man, you pull that box out and you talk about the information in that box. And then when you're done, you put the box away. But there's that box. There's that box that nobody knows about. That's that private box. That's that box you keep hidden from even your wife and your children. Teenagers, what's in your box? Do you have apps on your phone that are hidden away? Are you chatting with people you ought not be chatting with? Are you looking at images you ought not be looking at? Mental purity. I'm talking about having a heart that is pure before God. You cannot have the right etiquette with love if you're putting impure things in your heart and your mind. Heard an illustration sometime back that really uh, revolutionized the way I think about a lot of things. And I, I like to call this illustration the elephant and the ant. Have you ever wanted to quit a bad habit? 
and you tried and you failed and you tried and you failed and you tried and you failed and you tried and you failed. Uh, and you made up your mind, I'm going to do it this time. I'm going to do it this time. And then you just come crawling back and you realize I couldn't do it. I couldn't quit that habit. Uh, that, that ant is represented by your conscious decisions, while your subconscious decisions would be uh, described as an elephant. And you can tell yourself all day that I'm going to quit, but if you're not changing what you're putting in your eyes and your ears that feed your heart and your subconscious, the elephant will squash that ant Every single time. If you can't quit a bad habit, whether it's an addiction or, or whatever it might be, then maybe it's because that you're not changing what goes in your eyes and your ears and you're not purifying and cleansing that heart. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee, O let me not wander from thy commandments. When we decide that we're going to put the word of God in us and we're going to let it filter through us and we're going to make God uh, the center of our subconscious, then we'll see that that elephant of God's word begins to squash the ant of our bad habits. Have you ever had that moment in our culture where you woke up one morning and you said, my goodness, we are a vile country. How many of you have had that moment where you said, wow, where did it all go wrong? Where did this sexual revolution begin? It is steamrolled the wrong direction fast. Well, I believe it began in the classroom. It began with sick, twisted, perverted professors teaching their secular, godless views of what love is to their students. They've attacked the educational mind of our children. Somewhere a long time ago, we felt like that things that parents ought to be teaching their children at home, the public school took upon themselves to teach to third, fourth, and fifth graders. And the education got deeper and steeper year by year. And it got to the place where now a little girl needs permission to get abort, rather to take Tylenol at school, but she doesn't need permission to go get an abortion after school. What's wrong with our country? I'll tell you what happened is that our minds have become perverted by sick, twisted, perverted professors. And I say our minds, I'm talking about our, our country's minds. But I don't think the classroom is the only culprit. I don't think the classroom is the only one that's wrong here. I think it also began in Nashville. For decades, Satan has been using both sensual rhythms and sensual words to indoctrinate our minds and reprogram our culture to love in a godless way. Four decades ago, uh, our, our uh, rather three decades ago, our uh, our 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 great grandparents were quitting on marriage. Uh, two decades ago, they decided to just go ahead and, and live together. Who needed marriage? And now the decade or the, the generation we're in today, it's not uh, uh, it's not about living together. It's about living with the same gender. We see the degradation. Degradation. Satan is working to destroy the family unit and he's doing so in the sickest, most twisted, perverted way possible. And I want to stop the sermon here and just say that it is never my intent to be ugly or mean or unkind to anyone who chooses any lifestyle. I love the alcoholic, but I hate the alcohol. And I love the homosexual, but I don't love their homosexuality. 
There's a place for them in God's Word. There's a place for them to heal. There's a place for them to find a path back. But Satan has worked hard to destroy the mental purity of our country. He's also worked to destroy the mental purity of our Christians. I believe the third place that this revolution began is it began in Hollywood. Just like the music industry, Satan has been pumping out film after film after film, teaching us that what God created between a husband and his wife is boring there, and it's fun between everybody else. In every illicit relationship that you can find, hey, that's exciting. Hey, uh, there, there's, there's the fun with that. But, it, but within marriage, it's boring and it's dumb. Satan has worked hard to destroy the mental purity. But while Satan has worked to destroy the mental purity of the lost, he's also attacked the minds of the Christians. It's sad to say that many Christian men struggle with pornography. And it's a private struggle. And it's something that others don't know about and they keep hidden. But uh, they have things going on in their phone and things going on in a hard drive or things going on in a computer. And, and it's ticking away and it's destroying, men, the quality of your marriage. It's time to get help. It's time to put those things away. For women, it's not usually pornography, although anymore it could be. For women, oftentimes it's a romance novel. Ladies, let me just tell you, you need to put the romance novels away if you're reading those. Because in your own way, in its own way, it's causing you to want things that are not biblical and godly. What does James chapter 4 and verse 8 tell us? It says, draw nigh to God... He will draw nigh to you. Notice this next part. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Where do you begin? You've got some impurities in your heart and your life. I'm not here to put you down. I'm not here to make you feel bad. I'm here to push you to do what's right. For every step that you take toward God, God takes a step toward you. We've all seen this before. You take another step toward God... He takes another step toward you. And you seek help and you get help. What's the next step in the process? You could actually back up a verse, but we'll look at that maybe another time. The, ne- the next step in the process is that you cleanse your hands. But then the very next one is this, that you purify your hearts. You see, you can clean up the outside to look good and pretty to everyone, but if your heart's filthy, what good does it do you? Then it says this, that we're to put away double-mindedness. It's this, I'm one thing at church, I'm one thing in front of my wife, I'm one thing in front of my children, but then privately I'm something else. I'm talking about a mental purity tonight. I'm talking about love's etiquette. If we're going to have relationships that are, that are uh, uh, filled with God's pure and holy and true love, then we must learn to lay aside uh, uh, a mental impurity. We must, uh, we must work hard to be pure in our minds. Let her be, notice, a, a moral purity. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5 uses the word unseemly. It says there, doth not behave itself unseemly, speaking of charity. That word unseemly can only be found one other time in the entire Bible, and that's found in Romans chapter 1 and verse 27. I'll not take the time to read the verse tonight, but it, that chapter deals with those who fall into the sin of homosexuality. Many people say, well, homosexuality is just in the Old Testament. No, my friends, Romans 1 is very clear on how God feels on that topic. Someone once asked me this question, actually recently asked me this question, why? 
Why is it that the LGBT, LGBT community has had so much success? How come they've been able to make such progress for their quote-unquote civil rights so quickly? I believe the answer is simple. And for the, the sake of the young ears in this room, I'm just going to read what I have down here. Sensuality is used to sell almost everything. There is very little sacred left in our culture today. The truth is, even a good, clean Christian boy growing up in our culture has very left to his imagination on his wedding night. Listen to this here. When you dip a society into this sin, the way that ours has been, you are going to get all kinds of weird things as a result. And it ought not surprise any of us. Parents, if there's one thing I'm begging you to do tonight, I'm begging you to protect the purity of your children. I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. I'm beseeching you. For years I've worked with teenagers. I've taught in Christian schools. I've had teenagers in my class and I have begged with them to be pure. I have pleaded with them to be pure. I have pleaded with them to wait until their wedding night. I have asked them to refrain from touching each other before marriage. And I have I have done my very, very best to teach it logically from the Word of God. And teenager after teenager after teenager, I watch them as they go out and they live, they, they, they live and move in with someone and they have children out of wedlock and they run and do all kinds of weird and strange things. And I look at men and women I went to college with and sat in Bible classes with and now they're involved in all kinds of weird, odd lasciviousness. And I look at it and I say, where have we gone wrong? And all I can come back with is it wasn't me who lacked to teach it at the Christian school. It wasn't me who lacked to preach it in a youth group. It wasn't the other pastors on the staffs I've worked with because they did their part. The failure was at home. The failure comes back on the parents because they did not walk guard around the purity of their children. Now, parents, I do know that you can do everything in your power. And sometimes it still doesn't quite work out. I understand that. But you ought to do your very best. You ought to do everything you can. It ought to be so important to your children that you understand. Down to what commercials are watched on TV. Down to whether or not you even have a cable subscription in your house. I'm not here to preach against cable TV tonight. We have, um, we have some cable channels that we watch. But they're wholesome and we're careful. But I, I wonder, I wonder that when TV was invented, if it had started out as vile as it is today, if every preacher in this country wouldn't have preached against TV. I just wonder. I wonder if as the, the frog in the pot has slowly warmed, if preachers have just let it go and let it go and let it go. And if we're not there yet, the day is coming soon where you will need to just totally cut the cable in your house. You can get a DVD player. You can have... Uh, a Netflix subscription with uh, parental guards set around it. Yeah, there are other services out there where your children can still watch wholesome TV without needing a cable feed into your house. You say, Pastor, are you telling me it's a sin to have cable TV? I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is this. Be prudent and walk guard around the purity of your children. Be very, very careful to walk around them. 
And so we see a moral purity. Letter C, and we'll hit this one and go. A, a marital purity. Marital purity. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4 says this, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. I've preached pretty hard tonight on, on this, and so we'll, we'll not spend a lot of time here, but sir, if you're being tempted to chase some pretty little girl that wiggles when she walks, and you're a married man, you need to get away. Lady, if there's some man at work that's making a move on you and is tempting you to, to cheat with him, you need to get away. You say, well, why? Because the Bible says that God's going to judge you if you don't. That's a guarantee in Scripture there in Hebrews 13. And I don't think you want that. And so you, you leave what is meant for marriage in marriage. And you leave that between you and your wife and you leave it there. And so we see, number one, love's politeness. Talking about love's etiquette tonight. Number two, we see love's purity. And number three, let's finish the sermon on an upbeat note. And let's look at love's preference. Look with me at verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 13. It says, There doth not behave itself unseemly. Notice that, ne- notice that next one. Seek, seeketh not her own. Seeketh not her own. Many of you are like me in that you enjoy having some sort of measuring stick to see how much you have grown in your faith? How many of you like those tangibles? You can measure growth, you can see growth. How many of you, with your children at home, you had a corner somewhere that you, you, you mark on the wall as they grow and you write the date? How many of you in here have done that with your children or are doing that with your children? That's neat to go back and see progress. I like to see similar signs of progress in my Christian life and, and I like when there are sorts of, of a sort of measuring stick to see how I have come to grow in my walk with the Lord and my relationship with others. And let me give you one of those tonight. To what degree do you naturally prefer others over yourself? To what degree is selfishness blended in with your love? Uh, is your preference you or is it others? Is it you or is it others? As you grow in your love, as you grow in love's etiquette, as we're talking about tonight, you'll find yourself preferring your spouse over you every time. You'll find yourself preferring your children and their needs. And I'm not talking about giving them everything they want. I'm talking about giving them what they need. You'll find yourself preferring someone else at work. You'll find yourself putting others first and letting God be the one that promotes you. There's a story about a little boy who came down with a very bad sickness. And he found himself in a hospital in need of a blood transfusion. That little boy had a sister who was about 11 years old. That little girl had the perfect blood match for that blood transfusion. So the doctor and the parents came to the little girl and sat her down and said, your brother's very sick and your brother is going to need a blood transfusion in order to get better. You have the perfect blood match. And we want to know if you'll participate in helping your brother. That little girl got really serious really fast. She took a deep breath and she said, Okay, I'll do it. So they took the little girl and they laid her down on the table and they prepped her for the, the, the blood transfusion. The little girl was tremoring, she was shaking. 
She looked up at the doctor and her parents and she said, is it going to hurt? And they said to her, yeah, it'll hurt a little. And when they put the needle in your arm, there will be a pinch. The little girl said, no, that's not what I'm asking. Is it going to hurt when I die? And the doctor and the parents looked at her and said, you're not going to die. We're not going to kill you. You're just simply doing this to help your brother. You're going to be fine. She loved her brother so much. She was willing to die to see him live. My friends, that's what I'm talking about when I say love's preference. Love's preference. Again, there verse 5, the phrase is, Seeketh not her own. Seeketh not her own. It's preferring others over yourself. The, the title of the series is this, Learning to Love Like the Lord. Do I need to remind you that in John chapter 15, he said by this, or rather he said that a greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. How do we know that Christ loves us? Because he was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for us. Did Christ prefer himself over us? No. He preferred us over himself. And because of that, you have salvation. Tonight, the question is this. How much selfishness, how much selfishness is mixed into your love? Your love for those who know you best, would it be labeled as polite or kind? Or would it be labeled as rude and selfish? Would it be labeled as pure and honest and wholesome and godly? Or to be labeled as impure and sinful. Does your love prefer you? Or does your love prefer those who you claim to love? Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed this evening.